Hello and welcome to Trinity College Dublin Talks. Uh, with us today on a lovely kind of sunny day in, in Trinity is Professor Ronan Lyons. Ronan is uh, one of Ireland's leading experts on the housing sector. He's an economist by, by training. He trained here in Trinity and also in Oxford. He's worked in the private sector with IBM and others. Uh, but more recently, he's worked with uh, Daft, uh, a website that tracks property prices and has turned out to create an amazing kind of database, which I think it's fair to say, Roland, you've been able to kind of dissect and, and, and learn a lot from. So welcome. Thank, thank you very much for having me on. Good. Well, one of the things we do, Roland, is uh, one of the things that interests me is why do people choose to do what they do and, and, and what mm. it's like? I mean... It's not an obvious job to become a, an academic economist. Uh, can you remember the kind of the moment when you first became interested in economics? There's probably two key ones I'd highlight. The, the first, so I was born in 1980. So I just about remember when things were really grim in the 80s. Not very well, but I, I remember enough to remember that I heard about this thing called unemployment. And then I asked someone, I presume I asked one of my parents, you know, what, what does unemployment mean? And then they gave me some kind of answer that a seven-year-old would understand, uh, you know, you don't have any work. Uh, and then I, I seem to have just really latched onto this idea, perhaps for fear that it would happen to me or <laughs> something like that. Um, and then I was asked, you know, why can't we fix this? Um, and then somebody, I don't remember who, but said, oh, well, that's the kind of thing an economist would do. And then at that point, I think a, a, a plant, a seed rather, had been planted and uh, from then on, I was always, I always knew I was kind of interested and it was never in doubt that I would do, say, economics was leaving, so I always wanted to do it. Um, and then that got reinforced and I ended up doing best in, in Trinity and, and choosing economics and political science. And then just after I finished my degree, uh, I was staying on to do a master's, so I'd obviously committed enough anyway to do that. Uh, but I was doing some research for one of the, the academics in Trinity. And at the time, this would have been 2002, there was a, a benchmarking report. And that, that report was basically, how much more are we going to pay our public servants? And this was a big national thing, it was wasn't a, it? You know, it was the entire public sector. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And, and in the end, uh, most grades in the public service got... Uh, somewhere between 5 and 12%, not as a one-off bonus, but as a, um, a permanent increase. And every other increase is going to be based off their new uh, higher salary. And you can see how that might be problematic. You can see that's an awful lot of money to be committing to give just overnight. Uh, and as it turns out, when they did the report, there wasn't a huge amount of evidence to show that there were people leaving the, the public sector because things are better elsewhere. And what struck me was the research, after I was doing this research, I was helping, it was Frances Ruan, who's retired a few years from the SRI now, she was in Trinity then. Um, uh, she was one of the academic economists, and academic economists as a group were the only people to say, look, we would benefit from this, but it's a bad idea. And I can't think of any other interest group ever <laughs> that I've ever heard say... To campaign against their campaign own Campaign against their groups. own yeah. interests. <clears throat> and I mean, it's kind of maybe almost ironic given the external perception of economics is this kind of completely self-obsessed, overly rational, homo-economicus kind of thing where you're going to only do what's in your self-interest. But actually, academic economists stood up and said, you know, you could, yes, we will benefit from this, but this is a bad idea. And, and, and that struck me as there's a, a sort of a, there's a nobility in that, in that this was the right thing to do, um, even though it would have cost them. And I think that's, that definitely um, 
planted a seed in terms of, of academic research. And as you mentioned, I did, I did work for a few years in the public sector and the private sector, but the research bit um, really got back to me about learning new things. Um, and uh, that's how I ended up back here in Trinity. That's a very interesting story. And, <coughs> and the, the analysis turned out to be correct as well, by and large, didn't it? The, yeah, you know, the benchmarking yeah. if, process. If, if benchmarking hadn't happened, the Irish. Bankrupt the country. Yeah, one of the, the Irish public finances would have been in a much better state. Now, the, the banks are a separate issue, but certainly that would have, would have helped. They were right. So tell me, what, you, you, that, that's why you decided to become an academic, academic economist. And when we say academic economist, what we really mean is as, as opposed to somebody who, many economists work for banks, they work for other you know, big organizations like the European Commission or the IMF, um, where there's always an agenda of some kind. What, what, what's it like? On a day-to-day basis, you know, what, what, what do you do between the hours of nine and six? <laughs> I think uh, I should have said actually in my intro, you, you're also the head of uh, TRIS, which is Trinity Research and Social Sciences. So you have quite a lot of hats on, and, and you sit on the board of the Higher Education Authority. So there's a, there's a lot going on. I, I it's have a busy chronic, old life. Yeah. A chronic inability to say no. <laughs> I think seems to be my problem. Um, the uh, Thinking about what an academic is or does day to day, let's even just sort of broadly what an academic is or does, um, we're judged on three different headings, and it, the, the importance of those headings changes a little bit over the course of your career. But ultimately, you have three headings on which you're going to be judged on uh, your teaching, your, your research, and then what's called service. And service would be doing something like running TRIS or contributing to the policy debate or organizing conferences in your discipline or sitting on college committees. They're all elements of service. But I think externally, if you ask most people, I remember having a, a, um, a, an interesting conversation with a taxi driver coming in from the airport once, and he couldn't get his head around that, that academics are doing something other than teaching. He's like, it must be great to have nine months of the year off or whatever he thought an academic is or was. Um, and I was trying to explain to him, no, no, like I'm in my office 48 weeks a year, nine to five, doing different things, and then I go on holidays. And he's like, no, what are you doing? Um, so, so the teaching is, is, is an important bit, certainly. Um, but the, the research, I think, is why most people choose to become uh, academics. It, it, it's the freedom to investigate what you believe is most worthy of investigation. Uh, and I think that academic freedom is... is why, I mean, maybe it's changed over time, but I think that's true of most academics now coming into the profession. They're doing it principally for the research. They, they often enjoy, and I really enjoy teaching as well. And the service bit, if you can get a thing that you like in service, then the nine to five is actually a nine to nine or whatever I'd like to claim my work in terms of hours a week. It's actually, it is fun, even if it can be quite busy at times. So there's a lot going on. Why? why? Why did you pick housing? I mean, in retrospect, it was an obvious thing to pick uh, because it's one of the things that is in the kind of the national debate every day of the week. You, you, you literally could not pick up a paper from the last three years that didn't have a housing story in it. Uh, you you are in, a, in a, quite a small group of people who who you know research housing and think about it. It's, so it's, to me, it's strange that there aren't many more. But 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 I'm interested. <laughs> Why, why, you, why you did uh, you know, lock on this area of national importance? 
Uh, I'd love to say that I had good foresight and uh, I picked it because I knew it was going to be important um, or I could spot what was happening in the mid-2000s. I don't think, uh, uh, I, don't think I can claim that. Uh, one of the reasons, certainly, and maybe there's an element of that, but one of the reasons I ended up in housing is because a school friend of mine set up daft.ie right. and asked me when I was doing my master's, he said, could you do for us what permanent TSB do in the, at the time in, in terms of a housing price index? So, so I was like, oh, sure, how hard could it be? And again, I can't really say no. Um, so that's, that was about 15 years ago. Um, and... Uh, through that, I got exposed to housing. It's not, weirdly, it's not an area that a lot of research had been done, as, mm. you, as you mentioned, uh, which is doubly odd, not because it's, um, it's, not, it's not an obscure area, it's the opposite. It's, it's, it's so obvious everyone needs somewhere to live. It's the single biggest fraction of our spending for most households, that, especially if they own their own home, it's the biggest bit of asset and the biggest bit of debt on their balance sheet. It, it dominates our day-to-day lives. It dominates the economy. And, and yet it's so understudied, certainly in Ireland. When you start looking at the US, it's, it's quite well studied. Elsewhere in Europe, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But certainly... Uh, the Great Recession helped a little bit. There's a lot more interest in housing now um, than 10 or 20 years ago. And if I'm, you know, housing economists are kind of stuck in this old dichotomy between macro and microeconomics, which is completely out of date and doesn't make any sense anymore, but it's stuck, uh, those labels. Housing uh, doesn't fit in neatly into either of those. Oh, groups. that's very interesting. It didn't, just doesn't fall between the two main disciplines. Because a lot yeah. of what I do is very. <laughs> Microeconomic. Mm. I'm looking at individual properties and, and, and how they, they, they get on. And a lot of it is quite macroeconomic because you might be looking at the housing system overall. Um, but, but what I have noticed is that when I give a talk to, say, macroeconomists now, the pitch is a lot easier. That You don't have to spend quite so long going, why do we care about housing? Um, which is often how you start your thing. You know, you're going to speak to someone in a completely different area. You have to try and reel them in. And reeling them in in housing now, I think, is, is, is much easier. Um, and... Actually, when it's fascinating, I won't go into it in too much detail, but when you look globally, or certainly in the high-income world, at, at housing over the last 50, 100 years, um, something really changed. Depending on the country between the 60s and the 80s, and we went from having stable housing costs to having rising ones. And that's probably one of the most fundamental questions that economists have to deal with now, is how do successful places house the extra people that want to live there? Uh, because it's not the case that you can take some success and just redistribute it to other places. That doesn't work. So in Ireland's case, it's how do we allow Dublin to grow? Um, and I think those kinds of questions are fascinating, but they're not just short-run questions. They're not just Great Recession questions. They're questions that really go back 30, 50 years. Well, Ronan, you asked a question. Maybe you can answer it. You know, obviously, uh, the question of, of housing is uh, a large kind of political question. It's a social question. And I suppose it breaks down for many people into uh, how it affects them themselves and how it affects other people. Obviously, homelessness is one, but, but just inadequate housing for, for, for many people or people living in the wrong places with long commutes. What do you think should be the, the government response over time to the, the, the problems that we encounter? And I, 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 it always strikes me when I pick up a newspaper or talk to people elsewhere that these problems are being experienced in Amsterdam mm-hmm. and in Berlin and in Paris. And you know, it's, it's by no means unique to this country. It's, it's a, as you say, something something shifted about thirty years ago. But what, what do you think we should be doing as a country, as a society? 
when I look at, at housing, I, I kind of there's four main areas that policymakers interact with the system. Um, the first and the one we've kind of got of the four that's closest to being working um, is, is in restraining credit. That the problem with credit is it moves in cycles and it amplifies things and can re be really damaging if left kind of completely unregulated. And we learned that one the hard way. Um, we won't fight the last war again because we have the, the central bank rules in place. And there will be booms and busts in prices. They will go up and down, but they're not going to go up by a factor of five and then fall by 80% as they did in some parts of the country. That's, that, that kind of thing is not going to happen overnight anymore. So you broadly support the... the the mortgage rules. The mortgage yeah. rules brought yeah. in actually, incidentally, by a former colleague of yours, That's Philip right. Lane, who That's is right. uh, I think, professor I mean, of economics in Trinity and then governor of the central bank. A bit like Trinity had the president of Ireland thing gig for a while with, <laughs> the, with Mary Robinson and Mary Mackey. We had the governor of the central bank thing for a while, but now there's a, a, a new one who's not a, a Trinity, a former Trinity colleague, because we Patrick Onan as well mm. before Philip. Um, so that's roughly in place. The, the other three areas, I, I think we have a huge amount of work to do as a country. Uh, and not all of them are problems that we share with, with other countries. So the, the last one, land use, which I'll come back to, is a problem that's, that's common to many countries. But one that's unique to Ireland, or relatively unique to Ireland, is that it's so expensive to build. Something went wrong in our construction sector, and now it's really expensive to build compared to other countries, and perhaps more importantly, compared to how much we earn as, as households. So there's no easy solutions there. It's, it's really getting down into the, in, inside the black box, into the nuts and bolts, and figuring out which elements are, are we out of line with. But there are state rules telling construction companies they must pay a minimum of X, aren't there? Surely those rules could be removed. The, certainly, free market could know, be allowed to apply, no? Minimum wages, minimum sizes, all those things, are. there's a reason for them, but they, they bring not just benefits, they may bring costs as well. But I wouldn't be advocating for just let's get rid of everything and see what happens. I think it's about finding Finding the ones that are, are, are doing more harm than good, the well-intentioned rules that actually turn out not to be so uh, positive in terms of their net effect. Okay, so the second issue that has to be addressed is high, high construction costs. High construction costs. Yeah, the third one is about social housing. And if you think of this as you know, the first set of rules, the mortgage rules are about making sure prices don't go too high relative to incomes. Uh, the second is making sure, well, if you've got that, you also need to make sure that costs don't go too high relative to incomes. Otherwise, you'll end up with costs really high and prices are lower and nothing gets built. That kind of summarizes the situation here for the last 10 years. And the third area is, well, what about if your income's not enough? And, and that's where the state should come in and, and top up. Mm. And there's a, a system called cost rental, which is, is, is very cost effective. And it also helps make social housing a desirable. The developers want to put in social housing rather than kind of turning around at the end and, and begging them to set aside 10% of their units. So we need to reform that. And then the big picture one, I guess, it's that the longest uh, seated issue is around land use. Uh, and when you look around a city like Dublin or Cork uh, or Galway, uh, you can see completely outdated land uses. Like if you think about, but what do you mean by outdated? Do you mean are we talking about height here? Or are we talking about? I mean, height, uh, height is an element. It's about yeah. controlling what we do with the land, but but also if we don't have a land value tax, if you don't have a way of. Um, making people internalise the external costs of their actions when they hold land. Yeah, that's economists speak, Ron. No one understands that. I certainly <laughs> don't. Internalise the external blah, blah, blah. No, Say it in English. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for pulling me up on that one. No, no, it's a really important point. If you hold... Think about a, a, a buying a site. And why is a site valuable? A site is valuable not because of anything you have done. A site is valuable precisely because of what everyone else has done. 
So if you buy a site in a city centre, it's worth a lot of money, not because you're going to do something with it, but because it's close to transport infrastructures, lots of other workers, um, retail amenities, whatever it might be. So, so land values, there's a, there's a huge scope for what you might call sort of spillovers, that if you put in place a metro, the areas close to all the metro stations are going to see big increases in their land values. And the individual landowner did nothing to earn that big in increase fact, in their wealth. The individual landowner often got compensation. Yeah, for yeah, having it, their land exactly. increase in value by the taxpayer. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and a land value tax, what it does is it says if your land is val- if this plot of land is, is valuable based on what we allow to happen, um, then you need to pay some of that every year. What that does is it doesn't ban other uses, but it does it strongly encourages you to think about how you're using land. Can I give one example? Mm, um, the, the the Dublin bus depots, the Dublin bus has about six or seven bus depots around the city. With the exception of Harristown, which is out by Dublin Airport, they all have one thing in common in their history. They're, this is 2019. They're all former Dublin United Tramway Company Limited, brackets 1896, depots. Why did the tramway company set up its depots in Donnybrook and Clontarf and Parkgate Street and so on? Because that was outside the city. Land was cheap. At the time, the system worked. But over the last, especially the last 50 years, we have allowed people sitting in sites to do things that you would never allow people to do if they bought the site. Mm. And what that means is that we've ended up with, if we just take Dublin, Dublin's population, the Dublin-born population in Ireland has grown by 200,000 in the past two decades. Dublin's population of is it was only going up by sixty thousand. Sorry, Dublin's the population of Dublin city centre. The, the no, popula- no. This is Dublin city as a whole. Yeah, uh, sorry, county Dublin actually. Yep. So it's the Dublin-born population in Ireland has gone up by two hundred thousand, but only sixty thousand. So one hundred and forty thousand people have been driven 140, out. One hundred and forty thousand people. It's not even the case that Dublin is not able to accommodate people moving in from the rest of the country anymore. It's that the Dubliners themselves are having to move further out. I've never heard that statistic. So two out of three people born in Dublin are driven out of Dublin by high... Of the, yeah, the of increase the, in the yeah. last 20 years yeah. have been driven out. And unsurprisingly, when you look at, say, commuting statistics, mm-hmm. roughly two-thirds of the commutes we've added since 1981 are long commutes, either by time or distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've, 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 we've managed to sort of turn uh, what you would normally think of as the successful urban model on its head. We don't have people going into the cities, with people from the cities coming out into the rest of the country. And it's not a sign of success. It's not rural Ireland is beating all the odds. These people are still working in Dublin. They're just not allowed to live there anymore. And that's, that's land use. That's a land use issue. Um, and that, that, that's the reason I get kind of passionate about what I do, is that we can fix this. We know what the solutions are. I guess the tricky bit is getting elected and proposing the solutions that are going to be done, because they're not popular with, with sitting residents. The old Jean-Claude Juncker That's expression, right, we know what to do, we just don't know how to get re-elected. I mean, I mean what you're calling for is a, uh, what's, I think the jargon is site valuation tax really, isn't it? That's right, and, yeah. And the government faced a choice about 10 years ago and chose not to go down that route. But that, that really values the potential value of a piece of land rather than the actual value. And that's That's right. Yeah. And it, as I said, the land one is an issue that many other countries struggle with as well. So if you go to um, if you go to the UK or if you go to the US or indeed increasingly continental Europe, um, they will place more and more restrictions on what you do with a particular site. If you go to Japan, it's not the case. Um, New York and Tokyo were roughly similar sizes um, back in the 1960s. Tokyo is now twice as big as New York. 
Um, and a good chunk of that is the ability of Tokyo's housing system to respond to the extra demand in a way that New York is not. Is that a good thing? Is Tokyo a good place to live compared with New York? I, th- I mean, there's no, I, I haven't seen any evidence that, that the quality of life in Tokyo has, has suffered by allowing people to live close to their work. Um, you do get this discussion, and it happens in Ireland, uh, and international people laugh when they hear this, is that, that Dublin is somehow too big. Um, <laughs> that uh, that the, the, the 1.5 million, obviously, it would be, if this were a thousand years ago, it would be phenomenal. Um, but but as a, in the 21st century, 1.5 million is, is not too big. And then you get, well, okay, no, it's too big relative to the rest of the country. But actually, then, when you compare... Dublin within Ireland to any other kind of similar sized country in, in Europe or indeed elsewhere in the world, Dublin is exactly where you'd expect it to be. It's about a third of population. It's a little bit more of economic activity. That's that's in line with the number. It's not the case that we have Dublin too big. You could argue that our next cities down, Cork, Limerick, Waterford, Galway are too small. Mm. Um, but that's, that's not a different argument. Yeah, that's that's that they're too small relative to their hinterlands, not they're too small. Uh, uh, because Dublin is too big. They're too small because they failed to become bigger. I don't think kind of what it, you're saying. I mean, yeah, I don't not, even think not it's through it's, anyone's fault. But, it's not, but, yeah. it's not, certainly not the fault of the cities themselves. Yeah. It's, it's the fact that we've, we've, we've chosen a sprawl model uh, instead of, instead of a, a density model. Um, and indeed, even BBC had a thing this week about, you know, uh, are cities as bad for the environment as we think they are? And to uh, environmental economists and to urban economists, this is a bit of a shock. Because we know cities are incredibly energy efficient. If you've got a population of 8 billion people, <laughs> get them into cities. Yeah, cities are good for the environment. That, yeah, they're, they're, green. they're incredibly yeah. um, uh, efficient. Mm. And one of our best inventions, as Ed Glazer calls it, he's one of the kind of leading urban economists. So that this idea that there's uh, a perception out there that, that cities are bad for the environment, well, the alternative is sprawl. That's much, much worse. Um, so I think we have a job to do as as housing economists, as urban economists, as environmental economists, and getting people to understand, as you were saying, is the quality of life good in a big city? Yes, because you get variety, and yes, because it's it's environmentally more sustainable than the alternative. Now, this is a, a, an interesting academic discussion, and, and with very practical kind of applications, but I suppose a question that people probably ask you a lot, I would imagine, is, uh, I'm thinking of buying a house, should I buy or should I sell, or blah, blah, blah. I mean, we're talking now in September 2019. Brexit is supposedly one month away, a little over a month. Uh, if it uh, happens. Drone attack has just destroyed 5% of the world's uh, oil output. Things are looking uh, economically very, very gloomy indeed, I would have thought. Although it's just a personal opinion. Do you think this is a time that people should be uh, contemplating moving up the housing ladder, down the housing ladder? What, 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 what would you say to a friend? Yeah, what I, would, what I would typically say when asked this question, and I'll admit I've been asked it once or twice before. I imagine. Um, is you want to ask yourself a couple of questions if you're thinking about a particular property. Um, the first is what's your time horizon when you're thinking about the property that, that you're going to buy I'm assuming, say, it's not an investment, whether it's a kind of a mm. separate uh, calculation-ish. Many of the same things will apply. This is for somebody looking to live in, in a property. And if you're saying, well, I want to buy this property and sell it in two years, that's really risky um, because you don't know what's going to happen with 
Saudi oil fields or Brexit or whatever. If you're talking about five years, it's still that's quite a risky time rather than be buying a property and then selling it again. You could make out with an extra 20% capital gains or you could lose 20%. For me, for owner-occupiers, it's really about the 10-year-plus home that you've got to be at least prepared um, if circumstances uh, go a certain way that you can stay in that home for 10 or more years. Because what that does is that allows you to not worry about the short-run stuff. You say, okay, in 10 years, where will things be compared to now rather than what's going to happen next month or next year? And, and also, going back to the central bank's mortgage rules, you'll have to have at least sort of 10 or 15% equity at the start. That's your buffer against those shocks, as well as the mortgage you, that you'll be paying down. So after about 10 years, you could have maybe 30% of a, a buffer. Right? So even if the property value went down 20%, you've probably paid less than if you were renting for the same window over 10 years and you can sell it, you're not stuck in the property because you're ne negative equity. That's just a little bit about the time horizon. The key question though really is how much do you bid for a particular property? There's never the wrong time to, to bid the right amount on a particular property. Uh, and there you've got to think about what you believe is, in this sense, counterintuitive for somebody thinking about buying to, to occupy themselves, but what's the appropriate rental value of that property. How much do you think it would fetch in the open market? And what are you prepared to pay, if anything, above that open market rent? And by answering that question, you can come up with the fundamental value of that property. See, I don't think that's something many home buyers ever ask themselves. Yeah, and I get no, it's kind of a concrete, thing. Yeah, a concrete yeah. example of it. So suppose you've got a property that you think uh, rents for uh, something like uh, 1300 a month. Um, and over the course of the year, that gets you to something like, say, I'm going to get caught, pulled up on my mats now, um, but call it 15,000 a year is the yeah. annual rental value of that. Then what you just ask yourself is, okay, what multiple of that annual rent am I willing to pay to secure this home? But there's a frightening way of thinking about this, which is that when you buy a home, you have said that you value that property more than anyone else on the planet. Mm. And that's, you have that statement, you have to be able to back that statement up with something. Um, so normally, and this to give people, <laughs> somebody, I'm sure there's somebody writing, well, just tell me what price to pay. Um, uh, normally we would say 20 to 25 times the annual rental value is the right window. And is that kind of excluding tax and all that kind of thing? Because of course, if I get 15,000 in rent, uh, I should be paying quite a lot of that to the tax man. Yeah, you kind of have to set those to one side when you're talking about owner-occupiers because okay. uh, you, you don't know anyway. what the landlord yeah. would be doing. So a yeah. lease might be able to minimize their tax liability. Mm -hmm. All this kind of stuff is going on. You just think about the gross rental. Gross, okay. And then is it 10 times, 20 times, 30 times? And I think if we'd had this way of thinking in the bubble, if we'd got mm -hmm. this out there, that 20 to 25 times is your range. If you're paying less than that, fair play to you if you can get it. And if you're paying more than that, you're taking on risk. But if you're going to say above 30 times the annual rent, you're really taking on quite a bit of risk. And in 2006, people were buying property for 50 and 60 times the annual rent. And I think if we'd been able to phrase it like that, that that would have at least given people a reason to pause and think and say, am I making the right decision? But we didn't have people educated that way. We, we could barely on top of, do I know what I mean? What's that, that, that ad? I don't know what a tracker mortgage mm, is. Mm, um, infamous ad. Um, <laughs> you know, and an APO and all this kind of stuff. Financial literacy is hugely important here, but we can simplify it and say, okay, what are you, what are you spending as a multiple of the kind of annual value of that property? And I think that would 
help a lot of people. And I hope that helps someone who's thinking about buying at the moment. When they think it in those terms, they might they make it a different number to what they have in their head. So is that what goes on in the Lions household? You don't say charming windows. I've always wanted a conservatory or whatever it is. Uh, you, you you go you, you twenty five times. No you, you can have your you can yeah. have your 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 bucket list, right? And we and mm. actually, I, I myself, and my wife bought uh, something back. We spotted it in twenty fifteen, and it took us to twenty sixteen to get the keys. Um, and we had our things that we we really wanted. So we wanted somewhere we wanted everything. Of course, we didn't quite get everything, um, but we wanted somewhere central and, and somewhere with a garden and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's when you're once you've done that exercise, and in our case, we had also renovation to do, mm. so we had to factor in how much is the renovation going to cost, and that gives us our final property, and how much would that rent for? And we did do the, those kinds of maths, and we kind of maxed out on it, but that's okay. We maxed out on what we thought we could afford yeah. and what we thought the property was mm. worth, and that gave us the, you know, we've added mm. this more than anyone else on the planet thing. The courage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, but but it, by all means, have your preferences. Um, I think you'll find when you do that list, you have like a long list of 10 or 12 things, and then some of them turn out to be not as important as others, and you're like, we're never going to get all 12. So these are the four, or these are the five that really matter. And I'm not going to think about other properties, and that'll help you a little bit because it can be a bewildering exercise, especially when we were doing it, it was basically traipsing around dead people's homes. <laughs> there was no new homes being built at the time. We were just going through executive sales. Not exactly the most um, cheery way to go through Saturday morning. <laughs> Can I ask you one final question, totally unrelated to housing, but related to, to academics and social media? Uh, you are uh, extremely active uh, on social media. Can you just... Tell me why, I guess. You know, what, what you as a researcher, as a, as a social scientist, what you get out of your social media interaction? Great question. Um, I do use Twitter heavily. I don't use Facebook, uh, at least not certainly not for with an academic hat on. Mm-hmm. I use it for my five-a-side football, basically. That's about it. Um, and somewhere in the middle is LinkedIn. Uh, and actually, LinkedIn is kind of a bit of a sleeping giant. That you it is. It's getting better quite, and better. Quite yeah, yeah. good engagement. Mm-hmm. But say, if you just think about Twitter, what... What I use Twitter for, and I think this is the, the, I talk to some people and they just never use it and they don't quite get it, but you can literally do whatever you want with it. You can follow only celebrities, you can follow only academics, you can follow only news or obscure 12th century history Twitter feeds, whatever it is you want to do. Um, I think that's one of the nice things about it is it democratizes the flow of information. Uh, what I tend to do is I tend to follow academics. If I want news, I'll go somewhere else. And then when I tweet, they tend to tweet about my research, research I see, or often housing policy stuff, housing in Dublin, housing in Ireland. Um, you know, it's 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 you got to say it is a nice. It's nice to be able to vent sometimes, so you can <laughs> dangerous you can, but nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can write something. But what I would say about any of those platforms, and Twitter is a great example of this, is that be prepared. Not that this has happened, but be prepared for anything you tweet to be on the front page of the Irish Times or the Financial Times the, the next day. I had one kind of episode of this uh, when I was, when we were in, before we bought the home, we were over on the North Circular Road uh, renting and I don't know what happened, but the bin company just went past like three times in a row. So we had like a whole mountain of rubbish. So I said, nuts to this. I went off and took a picture of myself outside the rubbish. No, I think, took a picture of the rubbish uh, within an hour and I tweeted it and was like, at Greyhound, what are you doing? The rubbish has got built up an area. 
angry consumer Twitter is not great Twitter. But the Daily Mail picked it up, sent a photographer around within an hour. I said yes, because I thought for some chance, if it's in the newspaper, that they might actually come along. And sure enough, there's a picture of me with a hoodie and a whole bunch of rubbish in the background. Completely by coincidence, the guy next door was taking out of the rubbish as they were doing the photos, so there's actually extra rubbish in the picture. Um, and anyway, Greyhounds rang up the next day. And so it was fake news, strange, strange <laughs> rubbish. Completely by coincidence. Um, and Greyhound rang up the next day and got the rubbish taken away. But I think the lesson there is that anything you tweet it could be, and people will judge you. Right? So I'm followed by academics. So if I get into a Twitter spat with someone and call them whatever, I have people who could be assessing my funding application who'll be like, that's the guy who gets really angry with people on Twitter. So you do have to, to watch it. But as I say, for a democratization of information point of view, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And it can be whatever you want it to be, as active or as passive as you want it to be. Well, there you are, folks. You can follow Ronan Lyons on Twitter, <laughs> rubbish and all. Thanks very much, Ronan, for joining us. Thanks so much, Thanks for having me.